having those moments and those stories. And they, you know, obviously they seem to come up at Christmas because it's the most likely time we'll, we'll see people, you know, and we'll have to do that at times awkward thing, reconcile with people that maybe there's a strained relationship. Uh, one time I, when I lived in Seattle, I, I don't know if Tanya and I had been married yet, but I'm sure we knew of each other. And, but we were at the same church, and this story has nothing to do with her, but uh, Seattle is very hilly. It's a lot like San Francisco. It's, you're rarely ever on a flat road. It's either going up or going down or around. And so one time I was driving, and uh, you know, I, I was going down a hill, and I, I, I put on the brake a little bit. You know, I, I know I wasn't speeding, uh, but right at the bottom of the hill was an intersection, you know, and, and there's always these crazy people who, you know, who, who try to, you know, shoot the intersection or something like that. And there was a light, and the light was green for me to go, but as I'm coming down the hill, this car pulls out in front of me. Now, that, that's no problem, you know, if you make a free right and you think you can do it, that's great. But one thing you should do when you do that is gun it after you get in the lane, right? I mean, you should accelerate, make sure that the person behind you doesn't have to slam on their brakes to avoid hitting you. Can I get a witness in here? <laughs> Can I get an amen, you know? Well, this person doesn't do that. She, she pulls in the lane and then is going 10 miles an hour for like the first 15 seconds. So I got to slam on my brakes and just... That instant reaction, you know, eh, 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 you know, I honk, and then I got to, you know, veer over into the next lane. Well, we pull up to this stoplight, and, you know, lo and behold, we pull up right next to each other at the next stoplight down the road. And so, you know, I see her rolling her window down, and I'm like, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to be intimidated by nobody. I, you know, I, I roll my window down. And she's just like, you didn't have to. Da, da, da. And, and I start yelling back. And all of a sudden, she looks and she goes, Pastor Tom? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and our church wasn't even that big, you know? And I look over and I clearly look. And it is, it is somebody from the church, you know? And I'm just like, I can't. I mean, I, I, I remember just having that chill feeling come over me. Like, oh, no, you know? And, you know, and so, you know, we, we, we said a few things like, hey, don't worry about it, you know. But I, I noticed something. I noticed that in church, she was really cold to me. I got to be honest with you. There was a part of me that was, you know, a little avoiding of her. You know, she walked over on that side of the church. I walk over on this side, you know. I'm one of the pastors. I'm the youth pastor at this time, you know. And, and, and pretty soon, and, and, and her husband is the coffee cart guy. We had an espresso, remember this is Seattle, you know, almost every church has it. We had a full espresso bar in the church. So, I mean, it was, you know, you walk in the church and you could get a free, you know, double shot vanilla latte right before worship. It was great, by the way. Everybody was like, ah, when they were worshiping, you know. It was an excellent tactic. I thought the pastor was brilliant. And so, uh, so, you know, it, it finally gets up to the senior pastor, you know, that, there's some coldness between us. And I, I, I had kind of said to myself, hey, we worked it out at the, at the other light. You know, we said, hey, don't worry about it. We drove on. But you know what's interesting is you, you can think that you've worked on something or dealt with something. Yeah. You, know, you, you can say, oh, don't worry about it. Let's move on. But you don't. You know? 
You can say, ah, you know, it's all water under the bridge, but it's not. It's damming up pretty good. And so, you know, at some point, uh, the pastor gets the two of us, and we go down in the basement. Now, the pastor, he was uh, a running back for USC. So he's, you know, six foot five. His legs are like tree trunks. His arm, I mean, he's just, you know, he's not a force you want to ever contend with. And I remember when he sat down and he leaned forward and he said, okay, you know, Tom, you, you, need, to, you need to reconcile here. You know, I, you need to reconcile. I don't want you to come back to church until you reconcile with this lady. And I'm thinking to myself, she's the one who cut me off. She should have to say sorry to me. But what she had come and told the pastor is that I was avoiding her. And while I wanted to say, no, I wasn't avoiding you. No, I don't know. You can't lie, especially in church, right? You can't lie, you know? And so I remember just having that moment feeling like, this is hard. You know, reconciliation is not easy. And I, uh, I finally had to look at her. and I said, you know, I'm sorry. I said, for some reason, when you started yelling at me, I just got an impression of you, and I just, I wrote you off in my life. I didn't want anything to do with you, because I don't like people yelling at me, especially when I feel like I didn't do anything. And, you know, and, and she looked at me, and she's like, you know, thanks for being honest. And, uh, and, and, and you know, she kind of, you know, said a few things, and, and finally, you know, she, you know, we kind of, we really did resolve. And when she stood up, she's like, you know, Tom, can I give you a hug? I'm like, ugh. I hate hugs. I know Californians are huggers, so I have learned to love hugs down here. But up in the cold, dreary, dreary Northwest, we don't have to hug. You know, we can just be. We can just be. <laughs> and so I think she saw the look on my face, and I said, look, look, it's not you. I'm just not much of a hugger. And she just reaches and grabs me and squeezes me. And she just kind of jolted me. She's like, you need to lighten up a little bit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I remember how awkward that was, you know, especially as a, as a pastor, as a leader in a church, having to reconcile, having not only to just give grace, but have that grace be spoken, uh, you know, but it was nowhere near the time, you know, when I was uh, just attending a church about 20 years ago, uh, the senior pastor was driving his car, the youth group van comes up next to it, and they're all honking, and they're all waving at him, and he thinks it's a bunch of kids that are teasing him and his family. And so he rolls down the window and he flips them the bird. <laughs> this is the senior pastor of the church. Flips them the bird and the youth group van kind of goes <gasps> in horror as they see their pastor flip them off, you know. And, and what was interesting was I have not done that yet. But, you know... <laughs> Uh, and, and so the next Sunday in church, he apologizes to the whole church. I thought it was, it, was, it was incredible, you know. And what's funny is while he's trying to apologize to the church, everybody just starts laughing, you know, because we know our pastor. He's, he's a great guy, but he's, he's edge. You know, he's on the edge. He's, he's one of those rough and tough guys. You know, he, he lived on the streets most of his life. Gave his heart to the Lord, became a pastor. So no, nobody was like that shocked that he did that, you know. But, but the fact that he reconciled in front of the whole church, and I could tell it was a hard thing to do. It would be a hard thing for anybody to do. Go in front of a group of people and say, uh, 
I, uh, I flipped off the youth group van. Uh, you know, please forgive me. <laughs> this morning we come to the same theme, theme of reconciliation. There's probably no greater story known throughout all the world than the story of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. In fact, uh, even non-Christians know these stories very well. Buddhists revere uh, Jesus, particularly for the story of the prodigal son. They say uh, that this story embodies the, embodies the eight noble truths of Buddhism. Uh, Muslim, Muslim clerics will often reference these two stories in their preaching. Uh, these two stories have had profound global impact. And this morning, I want to bring it to you. It's the story of two sons. And I want to ask you a question. One son is rebellious. And one son is religious. I want you to ask, which one fits you? Heavenly Father, as we open up the word now, I pray you'd open up our hearts to receive and our minds to perceive. In Jesus' name, amen. The story will be up here. Let's go to the next slide real quick. (coughs) You're going to find the exact scripture up there, really in order to save time, because I think many of you know the story. Many people already know the story. Feel free to read this as I'm preaching it, but I'm going to go ahead and just start unpacking it without uh, without going through the dry reading of it. Not dry, but you know the the whole reading of it. We start with the rebellious son. The rebellious son approaches his father (coughs) and essentially says to his dad, "Dad, there's no easy way to say this, but you're still alive." And you have a lot of money, and I know that a third of that money will go to me after you die. In the Jewish uh, economy, two-thirds of the money went to the older brother, and the younger brother had one-third of the inheritance. And he said, I would really like that money, but since you're still alive, I can't have it. So, Dad, in essence, I regret the fact that you're still alive. I wish you were dead. I love your money Far more than I love you. In fact, if it would be possible, I'd just like to take all of my inheritance now and leave. So could we just skip the waiting game here and could I get the money? I can't imagine what my reaction would ever be if Jonathan Lucas or Thomas ever said that to me. Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm I'm waiting you out. We thought you'd have croaked by now, but you haven't. And I want to get on with my life. Can I get my inheritance now? You mean nothing to me. But the money you worked for all your life, I'd like to get that now. That would be cool. Be devastated. And yet the father gives him what he wants. He gives him his inheritance third of his money. There's a whole sermon there whether or not the father did the right thing. But Jesus is telling the story and this is what the father did. He gives his son the money. And as the son walked away, I mean, I hope you can just see it. You know, the father gives him the money and the son turns and walks down a long dirt driveway heading off to a far off village where he can spend his money. And the father is just looking at him saying, please, son, 
please, just turn around. Just, 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 just give me one glance. Just, just, just one glance is all I need. One glance, please. Just, just turn around and at least say bye. Say, say something. Just. The son never does. He never turns around. He keeps walking and walking and walking. For in his heart, his father's dead. And he leaves behind a devastated dad. This would be the equivalent of a guy who gets his family inheritance and all of a sudden just goes on a massive spending spree. He gets a, a new condo. He gets a new car. You know, he gets new clothes and he starts spending his money. You know, he's the guy at the bar who all of a sudden shouts, hey, next round of drinks are on me. And he's starting to live this wild life and he's, you know, he gets girlfriends, but they're not girlfriends, they're prostitutes. And they, he starts sleeping with, uh, you know, prostitutes and women for hire. And here's the problem with the world he's entered. They don't really love him any more than he loved the father. They're all in it for the money. I have met and prayed with and spoke to prostitutes. They're not in it for the sex. They're not in it for the, for the body or the touch or the feel. It's all about the money. And that's the world. This, <clears throat> this young man, the way he's treating his father, he now, he doesn't know it yet, but he's being treated the same way. His worth is his money. How do we know that? Because when the money runs dry and the famine comes, he has no friends around to hire him. So where does he end up? Well, a famine hits. And this is kind of the equivalent of an economic downturn. <coughs> Excuse me. Real estate's down. Gas prices are up. Unemployment rates are high. He all of a sudden has to put his car on Craigslist. And you ever see those ads where it says, need to sell immediately, need cash now, best offer? He's become that guy. He is now officially that guy. Nobody will hire him because he's never been a good employee, right? He's got no decent resume. In fact, the only job that he can get is working on a hog farm. And you're, you're left to say, well, where are his friends? Where are all these people that he partied with? Where did they all go? The last time this guy ever got a gift was from his dad. And what's going on in his mind is after he gets and he sinks so low, he begins to think not about the condo, the car, the round of drinks, or the loose women. He begins to think about his father's character. He says to himself, you know, my father has servants, and they're not starving. He feeds them. They're not homeless. They have places to live. They're not naked. They have nice clothes. How does the son know this? Because he lived there and he saw it. He saw how his father treated the servants and the slaves. He said, you know what? I'm an idiot. My dad's a great man, and I'm an idiot. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say I'm sorry, and I'm going to beg him, will you please just make me one of your servants? And the Bible says that he not only understood his sin, but he acknowledged it. He said, I've sinned against my father in heaven and I've sinned against my father on earth. He says, that's it. 
I'm going to quit sleeping with the hogs here. I'm going to wake up and I'm going back to my dad. I'm going to walk back to my dad. Why do you think he felt like that was an option? It was all in the way they parted. Rather than the dad laying on threats and curses and I told you so's, like so many of us might be tempted to do. Imagine you have a son walk out of your house. What words are going to come out of your mouth? Don't you ever step foot in here again. You want to go live in the world? You go live in the world. Don't come back. I'm changing the locks. If that's the way the son would have let, the father would have let his son leave, he would have never come back. He would have been dead to him forever. But in the way the father loved him, even to the end, when the sun finally sunk, there's a message for us there. Sometimes people are going to do stupid things. And we want to fight them tooth and nail because we're afraid for them. We know where that road goes. We know the destruction. And we want to we we fight back. Don't do this. You do this. Don't ever call me again. Don't ever speak to me. We're, we don't say that because we mean it. We say it because we want to shake them so that they don't do it. But they're dead set on doing it. The father recognized that. He said, you know what? We're going to leave so that he remembers. He can always come back. And I'll always love him. Like the guy in the video said. No matter what. No matter what. And so the father receives his son. One day he sees a figure on the road. And he says to himself, that's my boy. He says, his servants go, I don't know, that just looks like a man. He goes, no, 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 that's my son. I know my son. I've watched him his whole life. I know his build. I know the weird, awkward way he walks. I know the shape of his head. I know that man anywhere. If I saw him 10 miles away, I would know that's my son. And he gets excited. And he does what no Near Eastern man would ever do. He runs. Now you may say, Tom, why are you pick on all these Middle Eastern men that they don't run? Have you ever seen what Middle Eastern men wear? They wear galabeas. What are galabeas? They are long shirts that go down past their knees, right? They can't run because if they ran, they would run like this, right? Because they have long things. If they want to run, what do they have to do? They have to pull up their shirt, right? And what, 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 it, what does it expose? Not what you think. It exposes their underwear, right? So he's got to pull up his shirt. This is the most undignified thing that a, a, a respectable man could do. He pulls up his shirt and he runs toward his son and all the servants are going, is that our boss running his underwear? You know? What an odd scene it is. But this is how much the father loves his son. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if it's a little less dignified. He's not thinking about his position, his power, his prestige, his reputation. He wants his son. And so he embraces his son. He embraces, and it says, he embraces him tenderly. The, 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 the meaning behind here is tender. I often meet a lot of fathers. And I'll tell you one thing about fathers. They seem to have a hard time being tough and tender. Fathers, you've got to be tough. 
Otherwise, your family won't feel protected. But you got to be tender. Otherwise, you become their abuser. To fall on that wonderful balance of being tough and tender is exactly what this guy does. But he does something even more so. When he embraces his son and he says, get him new shoes and new clothes, he also says one other thing that's crucial. He says, and get him a ring. This is so powerful. The way that the father responds to the son is the way that the community is going to respond to the son. If the father would have walked up, slapped him and shamed him and heaped a half hour of abuse on him and said, hey, look, you, you no good son. You did a, hey, we'll see in a few months if you really shape it up. If he'd have treated him like that, he would have been setting the precedent for the whole community as to how to treat his son. All the slaves, all the servants, mom, dad, brothers, cousins, whatever, that would have established the tone. The father does something incredible. He sets a precedent for the whole community that the whole community is going to treat his son the way the father treated him. With forgiveness and mercy. And this is a word for us as a church. If God embraces someone, then we embrace that person. If God welcomes someone, we welcome someone. If God throws his arms around your worst enemy, we throw our arms around that person. For God in this story is the farm, is the, is, the, is the father. And when he says, get me a ring, a ring in those days wasn't just like, you know, something nice to wear. A ring was a symbol of a business transaction. He's essentially saying, my son has returned. Let's add him back to the family account. Now his inheritance is gone. But his position in the community is restored. Now some of you may say, Tom, I struggle with this story because that, this, this kid doesn't deserve that. The father's just becoming an enabler, you know? I mean, if you just give out grace and there's no punishment, there's no you know, consequences to his actions, then what's the boy ever going to learn? Maybe he's just going to do this again in 10 years. Maybe. Maybe not. See, that is grace. If grace has to be earned, then it's not grace. Grace is given freely, or it's nothing at all. Is he an enabler? I don't know. I'm wrestling with that myself. But I know this. Jesus is on to something here. I've tried it a lot of other ways with my sons. And you know what? I've ended up apologizing for half of those. Jesus has got something here. Because if you have to earn it, it's not grace. And what does the Bible say? It is the grace of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the judgment. Let's not forget that. And so finally we get to the religious son. And the religious son says, Dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? And of course the dad said, well, it's your brother. He's, he's come back. He's repented. There's hope he's not dead. And, and son, I think it's real and genuine. I think he really uh, feels bad about what he's done. And, and he keeps asking for you. He keeps wants to see you. He, he wants to reconcile with you and say that he's sorry. And come on in. We're having a party to celebrate that your brother who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. 
the older brother says, <laughs> no way. No way. I am not going to reconcile with him. When he turned his back and he walked away, he was said, you were dead, and now he's dead to me. He can rot in hell for all I care. I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk him. I don't want to celebrate him. I don't want to see him be enabled. I don't want to treat him like he's some sort of hero come home. I will not. I will not. Now we've got two sons in this story, the rebellious and the religious. And my question is, which one are you? Rebellion is often about innovation. New lifestyles, new sexualities, new culture. New. I'm not going to be bound by things in the past. Where religion is all about tradition. This is the way we've always done things. We need to keep our customs and traditions. I wish we could go back to the good old days. Rebellion is often about nonconformity. You know, I'm not going to abide by any cultural presuppositions or I'm not going to, you know, it's all about my own self-expression. Life is about self-expression, whereas religion is all about conformity. Hey, we live in a community here. You got to play by the rules. It's all about the rules. In rebellion, the sin is often visible. They're strung out. They're uh, mean. They they say horrible things, or they you know the sin, the sin can often be documented, and there's usually a civil record that follows. In religion, the sin is invisible. It's not out there. It's in here. It's the pride and the self righteousness that we can so easily struggle with. Rebellion uses people. The son used his dad and got the money. And then when he got the money, all of his newfound friends were just using him. Whereas religion often judges people. You stupid, lazy brother. There's no way you'll ever be better than me. I've seen some people who are really rebellious. I mean, really rebellious. All of a sudden become really religious. You ever seen that? You know, someone who was just strung out on the streets one day, they get saved and they go through this great born again experience. And it's almost like within a week, they are now really religious, judging all the people that they used to hang out with. And I'm kind of like, really, really? You flipped so fast. What happened? And then I've seen just the opposite. Being a youth pastor for 12 years, I saw religious kids growing up and conservative Christian homes and going to conservative Christian schools and following conservative Christian politics. Very, very, very conservative. And all of a sudden they hit a certain age and they move out of their parents' house and bam! Rebellion. And they go so far, so fast they begin to lose their mind. And both, make no mistake, both involve money. The religious son is thinking about money. He squandered all your money on women and drugs. And the younger son, right, the rebellious son, was thinking about money. <laughs> all revolved around money. If you're not seeking God, hands down, you'll be seeking money. But I want to offer you something. There's a third son in this story. Who is it? It's the one telling you. 
Is the father the bridge between the rebellious and the religious? At the end of the day, no. Because the religious son would not come in, would not listen to the father. Even though the rebellious son had come back in grace. Is Jesus the son of God, the one who loves the religious and the rebellious? And the one who died and rose again to bring us both to the father. What does Jesus say? He says, before you come to worship me, lay down your gift at the altar and be reconciled. Be reconciled with your brother. Be reconciled with your friends. Be reconciled with your family. Be reconciled with God. I know it's a strange thing, but some of you, you've got to forgive God. You're blaming him for the way your life turned out. It just doesn't work that way. Some of you, you've got to forgive mom or you've got to forgive your dad. You've got to forgive your boss or your coworker or your bookie. None of you should have a bookie in here, by the way. <laughs> I'll close with one more story. When I was a on-call pastor, there was... <clears throat> someone who went to our church and I had never met an actual bona fide millionaire before so I remember when I met him I always held this guy in high esteem like, yeah, what is it like to be a millionaire what is it like to write paychecks for a hundred people you know and I, I get one and I think how, how does this all happen you know and, and you know and I remember I, I just I always was danced around this guy in eggshells I mean I, I always wanted to watch what I said and, and I really held him in high esteem because I'd never met a millionaire and one time, you know, him and his son, <clears throat> were one of his sons, were, were having a, a real deep fight. And, his, and the wife, who was really solid at our church, said, I'd like you to go talk to the pastors. Maybe they can help you work it out. And so our senior pastor never liked to do conflict meetings alone. So I happened to be free that moment. And I went in, and we were talking. And it became very clear that uh, the father was just being so hard on his kid. I mean, it was just, you know... And the son had, had done something really not that bad and not really that intentional. Um, and the dad was just coming down hard on him. And, uh, you know, and, and, and there were threats, you know, threats like, hey, you don't need to ever come to my house again. I mean, it was, it was a fight. It was getting bad. And I remember thinking, boy, I hope my dad never says these kinds of things to me. I, mean, I know I can do some bonehead things. And, but, man, what this guy was saying was just horrible. And I walked out of there and I was debriefing with the senior pastor and I said, wow, I've just, I've never seen such a great man in his humanity before. My pastor grabbed my shoulder, squeezed it, he pulled me close. He said, the mark of a great man lies in their ability to forgive, not write paychecks. And he shoved me out, as in, like, go back to your desk. And he walked the other way. It was like one of those moments. I'm, like, walking back, and it's echoing in my mind because I had been so impressed by the money where what's really impressive is a man's ability to reconcile, or a woman's for that matter. Amen? Buy your heads with me. Worship team, come on forward.
this Christmas.